So I've got a couple of students who are going to help us this morning by reading the scripture for us. Often at Gateway, you know, we go old school and we stand out of reverence for God's word. Instead, this morning, it's a long passage, so I'm going to have you stand in the middle. But I've got Sky and Ben who are going to be reading the scripture for us this morning. And we are talk about typecasting. Ben is going to read the part of Jesus, and Sky will be reading the part of the everyone else. So we're looking at John 3 this morning, a very familiar passage. If you've been around church for any period of time, you've heard parts of this passage. So John chapter 3 this morning, and Sky, I think you're up. Take it away. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Ravi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay, pause for a second. The last section of this, some translators and commentarians take this to be words of Jesus. Typically, most people take this last paragraph to be John's editorial on what Jesus has been talking about, and I think that's what it is. So this next verse is familiar to you, even if you're not really that familiar with church. And I want you to hear this whole paragraph, John's kind of commentary on what Jesus has taught and is talking about here. And if you would, Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as Sky reads the last part of this passage for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Well, it's going to be most helpful for me if we kind of organize our thoughts this morning around five observations. But I want to begin by looking at a computer operating system and not in very much detail because you've got the wrong person talking if you want to look at a computer operating system in very much detail. But I looked up operating system in Wikipedia and I came up with this 
diagram, and I thought this was really helpful for me. So you have at the most basic level the hardware, and we'll get back to this later in our conversation together, but you have at the most basic level the hardware. At the top, of course, you have the user. That's you and me punching stuff into our computer. Just below that, you have various applications. You've got Word, or you've got PowerPoint, or you've got some kind of uh, data, like Excel or something like that, or, or various other sorts of sexy applications that you guys use for work or for home. You've got photo applications, etc. Then below that, to communicate between the hardware and the, the software, the applications, you've got the operating system, which kind of tells the computer what to do. Often, when we think about our spiritual lives, especially those of you who are venturing into church and are fairly new at it, we tend to think of the spiritual life as happening at the application level. So we're applying some new software. We're, we're trying to behave better or maybe even think differently. But what Jesus is suggesting by what he's taught this morning is that what is happening in our connection to God, what's happening because of what Jesus is doing in us, it's, it's really a change in operating system. So here's observation number one. Jesus is describing in this passage for this teacher, Nicodemus, he's describing a radical spiritual reorientation. He's talking about being touched. He's talking about being changed by kinetic energy, by the movement of Jesus. He is compelled. Now, if you're new to faith or if you're in a position of just exploring this morning, I don't want you to snooze on this point. This is critical for, for you to get. Jesus is talking about a radical spiritual reorientation. A number of years ago, Diane and I and our boys lived in the Boston area, and I pastored a church in Boston, and we had a woman who was recommended to our church from a local drug counselor. And she came to our church one Sunday, and I could see during the whole service, she was just really moved. And she came up to me afterwards, you could hardly speak, called me Father Ed, and she said, um, which I like, and she said, can we meet this week? And sure, so I met with her that week, and I heard her story unwind. It was a lifetime made-for-TV movie, really incredible story. She had a 12, 13-year-old daughter, a really nice kid, and she had a drug problem. Her daughter didn't know that she had a drug problem. This was, a, you know, she'd get babysitting, and she'd go out and do her thing, had gotten into trouble at one point, and had broken into a home uh, in a neighborhood called East Boston and stole a bunch of stuff for drug money. And usually that kind of thing goes completely unattended. We had our home broken into, and they never did anything. So that, that n nothing really got done because these guys were overwhelmed with that kind of thing. But this happened to be the home of a police officer that she broke into, and she didn't know that. So they scrub the place, and they find her. They find, we'll call her Hattie. They find Hattie, and they basically go to her and want to make a deal with her, bring all the stuff back, and tell us who was with you, and you won't get in too much trouble. She does that. She's cooperating with them fully. Then they find out that she had had 
a relationship for years, sometime earlier. Stay with me. She'd had a relationship. This is after the second commercial. Now we get into this. She had had a relationship with a Boston police officer that the FBI was convinced was dirty and was heavily involved in drug traffic in Boston. So in the middle of this case, the FBI gets involved, and they ask Hattie to wear a wire and to try to reconnect with this guy and get evidence on him, and if she does, they'll make all of these charges go away completely. She's telling me all of this. And she says, I'm really sorry because I've come and visited you. Now the FBI is probably going to be watching you. So she leaves the office. I immediately call my friend Rob Showers, who's a lawyer in Virginia. Hey, what do I do with this? And get advice. So we began to work Caddy through this. And more than working her through her difficulty, we don't know anything about her difficulty. She's got a lawyer. And besides that, the FBI is working with her. What we began to do is talk to Hattie about life change. We talked to Hattie about what Jesus can do. You know, I made a promise to Hattie. I've made that promise a couple of times since, but this is the first. I don't even know why I said it. I believe it was one of those things that God inspired. But I said at one point when Hattie and I were in, in, in my office talking one time, I said, Hattie, if you give your life to Jesus, I promise you in five years you won't even recognize yourself. That's what happened. She gave her life to Jesus, and five years later, she was unrecognizable. More in a minute. Let me read verses 1 through 4 again. There was a man of Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. He's, he's an admirer. No one can do the stuff you do unless they come from God. Jesus replied, look, I tell you the truth. You cannot participate in what God is doing. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't really be a part of God's activity unless you're born again. What? <laughs> Surely somebody can't enter a second time into their mother's womb. But what Jesus is talking about is a radical spiritual reorientation. I have to tell you, this is the truth, you guys. The first time I met Hattie, really looking at her in the audience. But then when she spoke to me afterwards and she came to my office that week, I knew God was involved in her life. I could just tell it. I knew God was involved in her life. I knew it the first time I met you, Eric Saunders. And I told you that story, I think, years ago. I said, if you give God five years, you will be unrecognizable. And you are. I knew it the first time I saw you, I knew. And I said to you, God is involved in your story. I knew it the first time I met you, Jan, the first night you came over to my house. We talked. I didn't say anything to you about the third or fourth night you came over. Remember you said, Ed, do you think God is involved in my story? <laughs> yes, I think he is. But I said, we're not going to talk about that until you're ready. Because I knew he would be. I knew God was involved in Jan's story. I knew God was involved with Hattie. I knew that there was spiritual reorientation happening in her and through her. You could see it. The second spiritual principle, don't miss this. This business of being born again is not our work. It is God's work in our lives. So if you've been around the faith for any period of time, this is the point I don't want you to snooze on. 
This is not our work. Look, Nicodemus was a spiritual veteran. So don't think that because you grew up in church and you were around stuff and you went to Catholic school until you're in the eighth grade, don't think that you don't need to hear Jesus' message today. Jesus is talking to a spiritual veteran. You know, here's what was interesting about Hattie. This great stuff started happening. I mean, she was excited. She came to our church every time we opened the doors for anything. And you could just see change happening in her life. And as the story begins to unfold, we think, God is providing this. This is awesome. God is providing her a way out. And God's going to protect her. And we would pray for her protection. She actually literally did wear a wire at a certain point and tried to reconnect with this Boston police officer, got no information from him, nothing was forthcoming, but the FBI, you know, thank you for what you did, we're going to get you out of this. She marches into court, FBI, I remember his name, I won't say, but some FBI agent from Boston showing up in the court, everything's going to be okay, Hattie comes to court, no FBI. The police show up, they throw the book at her and convict her and tell her she's going to spend a year in prison starting right now, and she hasn't even told her daughter any of this is going on. She has to leave the court that day and go to jail, and her daughter doesn't even know she's in trouble. So she's screaming in the courthouse, what happened, God? Why did you do this? She's looking at me and our youth director, why is God doing this? We've got to now figure out some plan for her daughter. Her daughter's in school, having a normal day. We get on the phone and we find this just that God provided. We find this guy who worked on staff at a church across town in a great neighborhood, a couple that had been unable to have children. And they were happy to take this girl in and took her in for a year and loved her. And it was the most stable environment that this girl had ever been a part of. It really, that year, changed the daughter's life. Oh, Hattie was really mad. She was mad at me. She was mad at God. And our youth pastor, Dorothea, visited her every week. And after a few weeks, she suggested to Hattie, maybe, you know, maybe we want to start studying the Bible together in here and gather some of these other women around. So once a week, Dorothea would go into the prison in Boston and have a little Bible study for women there. Begin to change other women's life. Little by little, Hattie's hearing what's going on with her daughter. Her heart begins to warm up again, and Hattie begins to accept what God is doing and realize that it is God's activity in her life. And this experience, this incredible trial, this amazing, shocking, lifetime movie event ends up strengthening her faith, not weakening her faith. Hattie gets out of prison and gets involved again with our church and gets very, very active I remember one Sunday, we had had a great service, and after the service, Hattie comes bounding down the aisle. She's only been there two or three weeks hugging me. She's hugging everybody at this point. And we get into a conversation. I can't remember what precipitated this, but somebody at some point said something. Hattie waits for everybody else to leave, and it's just Hattie and I. She says to me, Ed, um, what do you think of those born-agains? And I said, what do you mean, Hattie? And she said, those born-again people, they drive me crazy. I don't want to be around those born-again people. And do we have any of those born-agains in our church? And I said, Hattie, you are one of those born-agains. <laughs> because being born-again 
is not a social convention. It's not a way of behaving. It's not a political persuasion. It's not a set of behaviors. Being born again is being changed by God. It's being touched. It's being moved by God. It's being disturbed by God, radically altered by God, something that originates in and from God and happens to us. As we said, being born again, it's not like the installation of some new religious software. It's like the installation of an entire new operating system. The way the thing is organized is different. So think of yourself, your deepest self, your most essential self. Think of that like the hardware, your personality tendencies. Think of your behavior like the application. And think of other people as the user. So God installs a different operating system in you when you are born again, when you encounter him, when you say yes to God's experience of you and with you. He installs a new way of connecting the hardware to the application. Verses 5 through 7, Jesus answered, Look, Nicodemus, let me tell you something that's critical. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. It's a work that God does in us. Third observation, a born-again encounter is not an encounter with some impersonal cosmic energy force, so forgive my language. Don't let our use of the word kinetic in this series fool you. This is a very, very personal point. And I want to say this again. Don't snooze on this. Most of our world today, most of the world today, thinks of God in personal terms, even those who reject him. They understand that they are rejecting the concept of a personal God. And philosophically, this is the result almost exclusively of the Judeo-Christian view of the world and of God. This is what Jesus did. He let us know how profoundly personal God is. You know, it's interesting. Hinduism has a version of being born again. Uh, the Sanskrit word, I apologize for butchering this, is dvija, which means literally twice born. And the idea that is that a person is born once physically and then they are reborn spiritually. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? However, there are some critical differences between the view of Hinduism and the Christian view that I think are, are worth noting and help us understand more what we're talking about with the Christian view, what Jesus is talking about. I don't claim to have any expertise on this topic, but from what I understand, there are three things about this concept that are, are worth our attention. Number one, the concept of divisia. It doesn't appear in any Hindu text until several hundred years after Christianity had been introduced to the Indian subcontinent. So there are those who suggest that the whole concept of divisia might be because Christianity has been introduced to India. There, um, Indian scholars, would, some would disagree with that, but that's very possible. Secondly, the essence of Devija seems to be that this is an initiation into a new spiritual vocation. 
into a new spiritual job, a new spiritual position, at least in certain contexts. Divisia happens when someone becomes a priest or in some other way enters into the life of spiritual service. In other words, it seems to be, Divisia seems to be about what I do. And thirdly, Divisia happens after someone has spent time learning from a guru. It's based on an our intense spiritual work. It's the result of a deeper knowledge of the self, and it happens through my realization that I'm one with all things, that, or better stated, I am one with the source from which all things emanate. It's not a personal encounter of any kind. It's based on the deeper understanding that I gain through study and intense spiritual work. Now look, honestly, this concept makes a lot of sense, but it's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus was talking about a radical change which God makes happen within us. It's not our work, and it is profoundly personal. It's a profoundly personal encounter with a profoundly personal God. Some of you were here a few weeks ago, and you heard Sandy's testimony. In Sandy's testimony, and forgive me for butchering Sandy, but in Sandy's testimony, Sandy went through a period of time, a really extremely difficult period of time, uh, with her former husband, and the marriage was dissolving, and her former husband, through hurt or whatever, was fairly active in making Sandy feel unforgivable. And through repeated difficult conversations and hurt, Sandy let that settle in her heart. She told us, she, she knew that it wasn't true in her head, but her heart, she felt unforgivable unforgivable. Sandy also told us that she has had a lifetime habit of memorizing scripture. And part of memorizing scripture for Sandy involves repeating texts. So she'll go back to passages that she's memorized and she has a rotation. And in her rotation during the, the deepest, darkest period of Sandy feeling unforgivable, she winds her way back to re-memorizing Psalm 103. Now, Sandy said it from memory, but I'm going to read it. So this is verses 8 through 17 of Psalm 103. And if you were here, you were moved, right? You sense God's presence when Sandy started telling us Psalm 103 from her heart. And you could see what the personal thing that had happened to her because of an encounter with a personal God. Listen to God communicating himself to Sandy. This is just coincidental that she ended up on Psalm 103. Listen. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone. And his place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children. This is a very personal letter to Sandy Eklund. You're forgiven. You want to know what the title of your life is in our relationship? Loved. 
This is very, very personal stuff. Listen to this again. Look, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, nobody can enter into the kingdom of God. Nobody can enter into a real connection with God. He's controlling your life and you're dialed into him. Nobody can get there unless they're born again of water and the spirit. Because flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. And you shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again because the spirit has to do something in you, a very personal work. This is very personal stuff. Fourth observation, being born again is an experience over which we have no control. Control freaks. It doesn't happen because we make it happen. Now, this sounds like the same thing we said in the second observation, but it's not exactly the same. So let me tease this a little bit. Here's what I mean. You take my relationship with Diane, my wife. In my relationship with Diane, it's not exactly my work. It's, it's something that happened to me. I fell in love with her, but it's, it's definitely something that I have a certain amount of control over. If I invest in that relationship in the right ways, that relationship grows. If I do not, that relationship weakens. Really, that's the same in my relationship with God. If I invest that in the right ways, that relationship grows. If I don't, it weakens. But at the initiation of that relationship with God, at the beginning of that relationship, and at the foundation of it, at what's at the bottom of it, and how and when and where it started, I exercise no control over that. The experience of being changed by God, an encounter with him that begins to reshape me, I have no control over that. I heard someone give their testimony many years ago. He was a musician, and he was talking about how his wife had experienced life-changing encounter with Jesus, and she started having this Bible study in their home. He wanted nothing to do with it, and finally he decided one night he would come in and sit in on the Bible study, and that's all it took. Somehow that night, God got a hold of his heart and changed him, and at the end of it, the people in the room could tell, this man's name was John, the people in the room could tell that John, something dramatic was happening to John, and they said, uh, John, would you like to pray? And he said in his testimony, I'll never forget, I just got on my knees. I wasn't even embarrassed. I didn't even really know you were supposed to do that. But I got on my knees. And this is fascinating. He said, you know, years later, I wonder if I got on my knees or I was pushed. Think of the unsettling calamity that led to your transformation, Jan. Or Eric. You might have been pushed. I look back at my own story in exactly that same light. I thought for years there was this period. I grew up in a religious home. I knew the stuff. So I thought for years there was this time where I was just kind of open to God and seeking him and came back to him. And then over time, I realized that he was seeking me long before I was seeking him. He was organizing and arranging circumstances in my life, even in my heart to make things happen. Listen how Jesus continues. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You don't choose the wind. And Nicodemus asked, what are you talking? How can this be? Jesus says, look, you're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things? 
I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. We testify of what we've seen. But still, you people don't accept our testimony. I've, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How can you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. I, I, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You're looking at the guy who's the key to all of this, Nicodemus. And it was a time when the Israelites were in the desert. They were all getting sick, and God did this weird thing and said, you know, hold this snake up, and people are going to get well. Think of that as an image of what's going to happen with me. And I'm going to be held up, and everybody who's sick, who comes, is going to be well. How can this be, Nicodemus, to ask? He asked this because Nicodemus was accustomed to a religious life that was essentially a self-salvation project. And this might be the hardest part of nurturing a relationship with Jesus, releasing ourselves from our constant control, because we don't control this. The wind blows wherever it pleases. Listen, God did his incredible thing through the life and ministry and death of Jesus, and that incredible work enabled us to be rightly connected to him. Then in his time and in his way, he installed this new thing in us. He touched us. He moved us. And after that, he began to change us. He did this. It is his work in us, and it is a work over which we have no control. Fifth observation, it's important for us to make. Number five, Jesus came not as a signpost pointing the way. He came as a fork in the road. I said this a couple of weeks ago, last week. A couple of weeks ago. Don't remember. His intention is to create momentum in us. He wants to move us so that we more consistently choose God. So here's the giddy up. We come to a fork in the road, and one way is the way of life, and the way of experiencing God, and the way of experiencing his love, and its light, and its freedom, and its him. And the other way is the way of death, and the way of darkness, and the way of hiddenness, and the way of fear, and the way of shame, and the way of disconnection from God, and ultimately from ourselves. And this is why John adds this commentary. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For listen, God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. All right, if you're in a position this morning of exploring faith or you have never made the decision. You may have come to the fork in the road before and thought, oops, and turned around and backed up a few feet. Or you may have come to the fork in the road and decided, I'm going to choose this way because I like what's happening in my life right now. And you're three steps in and you realize, I don't like what's happening in my life right now. 
And so once again, in a way that's utterly mysterious, you are down this rabbit hole. And Jesus again becomes a fork in the road. And this morning, you have an opportunity to choose. You have an opportunity to say yes. And it may be for the first time. I'm not talking about religion. I don't care if you've never been to Gateway. I don't care if you never come again. I mean, I care, but that's not essentially what we're talking about. This is about you saying yes. You're not in control of this, but if the wind is blowing on your face this morning, say yes. For some of you, you've been circling around this a long time. This might be the fifth time you've come to the fork in the road. You know what's really neat? We get this whole story about Nicodemus, and we don't hear what happens. I mean, Nicodemus is a good guy, but you get the impression that he leaves curious. And he continues to be a really good Pharisee. But we see Nicodemus again in John chapter 7. I've got to read this, 45 through 52. I wasn't going to read all this, but I want you to hear this. John 7, 45. Finally, temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one spoke the way this man does, the guard declared. You mean that he has, they're talking about Jesus. You mean he's deceived you? The Pharisees deceived you? The Pharisees retorted. Have, have any of the rulers of the, or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. This is crazy. Bring him in. Let's, let's be done with this. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, asked, look, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And they get where Nicodemus is going. They say, are you from Galilee? <laughs> Look, are you into this too? Do you now believe he's a prophet? Nicodemus is starting to turn, isn't he? At the end of his life, we find Nicodemus one more time coming by night with Joseph of Arimathea and gathering the body of Jesus. Nicodemus and treating the body of Jesus for burial and burying Jesus. Nicodemus has stepped on the other side. Now, for some of you, you've been circling around this for a while, and you've never stepped on the other side. I want you to do it this morning. I want you to do it this morning. And it's that simple. Hattie sat in my office with me. I knew God was involved in her life, and five minutes later, she was a different woman. No circumstance had changed. In fact, she was a month away from going to prison for a year. <laughs> None of her circumstances had changed. But she was a different woman. Something had happened. A new operating system had been installed. And little by little, the applications were going to get cleaned up. Many of you have been around this for a long time. If you've missed everything else, don't miss this. Today, then, for you is like every other day. It's a day of surrender. It's a day of releasing your attempts at a self-salvation project and of allowing God to move you. Allowing God to stir you, allowing God to disturb you. So, just in the last few days, how has God been moving? Through your health? Through your husband or through your wife? Through your singleness? Through your discouragement or through your encouragement? Through your joy, through your comfort, through provision, through your job? Let's do some work for a minute. Okay, we're going to take a couple of minutes.
and I want you to do some spiritual work right now. Many of you have not had much time this week. You have been going at the speed of light. So I want you to take a few minutes this morning. I'm not talking about being religious. If you have never had a new operating system installed in your life and something has percolated in your heart this morning, then you need to turn to him and say, okay, yes. Yes. And if today is like every other day for you, a day in which you gladly and happily surrender to him because of how much you can trust Jesus, then I want you to do that this morning. I want you to take a minute and think about what is it in your life that God is doing. Not what terrible circumstance happened to me two weeks ago, but that God is in that. Remember in all of those circumstances, you're involved, God is involved, and our enemy is involved. And you're looking for where God is involved, and you're going to say yes to that. Just like Katie coming up and telling us to be thankful for that stinking turn lane that we're probably going to have to pay for. Because God is involved. And we say yes when God is involved. So we're going to take a minute, and you're going to think about your week, or your coming week, or maybe just yesterday for some of you. And you're going to look at how is God moving, how is God stirring, how is he comforting, or how is he disturbing, what's he doing? And you're going to say a hearty yes. When you're ready to say yes, I want you to just take a minute and think. When you're ready to say yes, I want you to stand. And then if after a couple of minutes we're not all standing, then I'm going to ask you to stand anyway. We're going to sing a song that just brightens things up to praise him. But I want you to do some work, and I want you to literally do some work and stand when you're ready. So, so we've got no distractions. Let's focus on him. This is on you. So you stand when you're ready. Remember, for many of us, it's the same as every other day. <laughs> I surrender. Now, for you, standing this morning and standing for the first time, that is awesome. I want you to come afterwards and tell me. This is great. Here's what we're going to sing. We're going to sing this this morning choir. I don't want this just to roll off of you. I want you to sing this like a declaration of faith. It's always springtime with you, making all things new. Your light is breaking through. And then the chorus, this is what you do. This is what you do. You make me come alive. All right, choir, let's stand together. you do. 
second verse. There's always new life. There's always new life in you. Breaking in, breaking through, moving me to a change of you. The Spirit stirs my heart within, and I am born again. Lord, I can feel the wind, let it blow. This is what you do. Jesus, we, we've been reminded today, you are the initiator of everything. You're the initiator of this creation, of all the lives here, of this church, of the relationships that are here, um, the building that's going up across the street. We are grateful that you are um, allowing us to participate in what you're doing here in this community. We ask that you would just bless these gifts that we're giving today and use them as you please. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.